Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 51, All Good Things. Last time, Sterling and the 90 of his semi-trained men had set off to meet up with Patty Main and the experienced members of the SAS, who were conducting what raids they could in the relatively condensed area between Tripoli and Aguila. And the fortunes had changed considerably for the desert men. This time, they were able to take the coast road, their road, all the way from El Alamein to Agabadia, to the south of Benghazi. Only then did they have to leave the road and head into the desert to make for Bir Zaltan, just to the southwest of Jalo. This put them about 75 miles due south of Rommel's defensive line, just in front of Aguila, where the desert fox was making a desperate stand. Having no time to lose, when the two groups met up on November 29th, the two SAS officers got down to work. Patty's group, labeled Squadron A, would raid the road between Aguila and Borat. Squadron B, led by Vivian Street, would do the same, from Borat just to the western side of Tripoli. Street's group was to head west ASAP to start their raids, and each squadron would continue until the 8th Army controlled their respective area. And all this was expected to be over for both groups by mid-January of 43. In between Shan Hackett's radio messages for Sterling to return when he could, he also told the SAS commander that he had heard Monty say this was the most important work the SAS had ever did. It could be decisive. What he left out, however, was this. As soon as Sterling was out of his presence, the CO of the British 8th Army started referring to David as the boy Sterling. He then soon after said at a dinner, The boy Sterling is mad, quite, quite mad. However, in war, there is often a place for mad people. Only then did he mention that if the SAS under Sterling could pull this off, it could be decisive. To this, David radioed back, congratulate Army Commander on Persicacity. Not too much later, the Army Commander found out about this reply to his compliment, but made no comment. Yet the SAS were not the only British forces operating in the area. The LRDG was there as well, and their current job was considered the most important work they had undertaken as well. Set up close to the coast road, about halfway between Aguila and Tripoli, various lookouts made detailed notes of what vehicles and numbers of men went by. So, when Monty started up again, he had a very good idea of what Rommel had behind his defensive wall. On that same day that Monty got started on his offensive again, December 13th, Sterling headed out west with Squadron B to get them started off right. But the way was so treacherous, they had to double back a few times. When they finally got to their base, Bir Fasia, they were almost a week behind schedule. So, it was decided to attack that night. The various teams of B Squadron loaded up their jeeps as they would be operating for days in a row until they ran low on supplies, only then to return to Bir Fasia, which is more or less just south of Borat. And things started out well enough. Paddy to the east was doing his usual thorough job. 
but the reason David decided to escort the other squadron was because of Monty's immediate advance. Patty would soon be out of a job, whereas this attack group had more time, and Sterling wanted to show his new boss what his men could do. That first night, Sterling and Mike Sadler, the miracle navigator, put bullets into two lorries and a staff car. Then they blew up telephone poles and mined a section of the road. But before the night was through, they also managed to destroy a mobile workshop and numerous various vehicles. But the night ended with them shooting up a general's tent. Sometimes rank does not have its privileges. But what David could not know was that those first night's raids were pretty much it for Squadron B. Rommel had made some changes. He had brought in some special forces, besides using many of his regular soldiers to help track down the SAS. The leader of Squadron B, Vivian, had his immediate unit and another unit with him on the first night. But after destroying 20 lorries, a very good night, the men were then chased, harassed, followed, and chased some more. And during these days of constant pursuit, some of Vivian's men were killed, captured, or wounded. Vivian himself barely made it back to El Frasia to gather more supplies. But the area had another visitor, General Rommel. The Desert Fox had heard about these daring raids and came himself to see what he could do. What he did was almost catch Vivian as they literally stumbled into each other. But Street managed to get away. Yet his pursuers never stopped, as the squadron leader was eventually boxed in and forced to surrender, to overwhelming odds. But his story did not end there. After being taken halfway across the Mediterranean in an Italian sub, the vessel came under a British air attack. The sub was destroyed by death charges, but somehow, seven of the ten Allied prisoners on board managed to escape. Another unit of Squadron B was chased away from its intended target and ended up amongst some Arabs of Tripoli. These men were known for collecting rewards by turning in Allied troops. But one of the SAS-3 men captured was Wilfred Thesiger, another Arab expert. As the three SAS men had no choice, they sat down, surrounded. But then Thesiger began the tea ceremony, valued by the locals. He had even brought along an enamel teapot for just such an occasion. The local men with guns appreciated him respecting their culture, and so did not turn them in. Because of this act of respect for another's values, these three men of Squadron B were almost the only ones not captured or killed. This was just before Christmas of 42. Sterling would not learn of this disaster for several weeks, by now, he was back at headquarters, keeping his promise to return, continuing on with the training and planning the next phase of the SAS, which worked out for Patty Maine as his work had been taken from him due to Monty's advancing. David ordered Patty's squadron A to return to Cabrit. It seemed as if Lebanon indeed might be their next new but temporary home. But then came a request from Monty. The general needed the Axis forces in North Africa to fall as quickly as possible, with the least amount of damage to the roads, communications, and various structures as possible. Normally, the two went hand in hand. David, of course, agreed to the general's 
request and decided to use his other men to help the 8th Army capture as much territory as possible before meeting up with the Americans. Besides, David had his own reason for saying hello to the Yanks. Sterling had bigger plans for his creation other than just a regiment. He not only wanted to show Monty what his men could do, but also impress the leaders of the U.S. Army coming their way. It was a public relations on a massive scale, but the price of admission was massive acts of sabotage and general mayhem for the enemy. And his goal was brigade status for the SAS. But with Monte as an adversary, the only way that was going to happen was to have Eisenhower and Sir Alan Brooke, the ranking military commanders of the U.S. and Britain respectfully, in his corner. So now, the semi-retirement of the SAS from North Africa turned into a four-pronged attack, as the 8th Army would renew its offensive around January 15th of 43. The SAS was tasked with helping it, hopefully, make it at least to the other side of Tripoli, maybe even further in the near future. One group would break up the communications along the coast road between Sfax and Gabes in Tunisia, where the coastline roughly turned northward. The road itself ran north to south, with Sfax the more northern of the two, located about 200 miles south of Tunisia. But as for the second group, this was Monty's personal request and more immediate to his upcoming offensive. The general wanted as large an SAS presence on the western side of Tripoli to make as much noise as possible, the hope being perhaps the Axis forces within the city would think they were surrounded and give up, but at the very least see that their capture was imminent and therefore not bother with the normal destruction of everything of value, a seemingly obligatory gesture in a hopeless situation. Meanwhile, a third group would make for the town of Mareth, where the coastline starts to turn north, and note if it appeared Rommel was going to build another defensive line there, and if so, how many of everything did he have? This left Sterling leading the fourth group. They would scour the area of northern Tunisia, but off of the coast road. Freiburg considered bypassing Mareth and then heading north just off of the coast road and allowing the towns to be missed, like Mareth, Gades, and Sfax. The hope was they would wither on the vine by cutting their supplies by capturing towns to their north. But the Italian maps he had access to were pathetic. If it could be done, then should be done correctly. Sterling believed he could gather that information. Now that the British army had made it as far as Borat, David left from there on January 10th and headed southwest for Bir Gaddafia. There he would meet up with some of the other raiding parties, and in a loose formation, they would all head due west for Gadamese, which is on the very eastern edge of the Grand Sea Erig. By this route, they would be giving the restless and now ever-watchful Axis forces a wide berth. Once at Gadamese, they would all head due north for Bir Sultan, about 50 miles southwest of Mareth, and establish a rendezvous point for all of the raiding parties. Though it was rough going at first, once they reached Gadamese, the ground was harder and therefore travel faster. But David took himself in a slightly different route that had brought him closer to Mareth. 
He wanted to see for himself if Rama was building another defensive wall there. But radio reception at this point had become dodgy. So it was fortuitous that Sterling's group ran into Jordan's group of the Free French. Jordan was heading north as well, through the five-mile-wide gap between the coast and Lake de Gerard, to further reconnoiter the area. Sterling was able to give the Free French the good news that Gaspa, about 20 miles inland from the coast to the northern area they were headed to, had been captured by the Allies. But there was more. The Eighth Army had finally taken Tripoli. Rommel's days were truly numbered. Yet there was still a lot of territory to be captured. Many Allied men could still die, and precious time could still be wasted. So Monty wanted the SAS to now not only focus on the coast road to the north of Mareth, but he wanted the intelligence gathering extended to the north of Sousse, just below Tunis itself. The idea was that if the SAS could disrupt communications and supplies behind Mareth, the Axis may decide to not even stop their retreat there, but to turn north to Tunis. The saving of lives and time would be priceless. But the advance by the two Allied forces converging on Tunis changed things for Sterling. He had planned on going south of Lake de Gerard, away from the coast, and then turn north to meet up with the 1st British Army, itself coming east along the coast to the north. But now, he decided that he would make for the narrow gap along the coast to the north, just behind Jordan's team, stealing what supplies he needed along the way, gather intelligence, sabotage what he could, and still meet up with the Americans after they had come further east. It was daring, it was bold, but that was sterling. Or at least, the life he had been leading for the last year and a half. He was convinced he could make it work. But there was just one catch. Since Jordan would be going through the gap first, he had been instructed by David not to attack anything, no matter how tempting. To raise a ruckus would close the door to himself coming up just behind. Jordan agreed, and his team left on the afternoon of January 21st. They headed due north and were coming closer to the coastline as they made for the gap at Gabby's. Because the going was so bad, 24 hours later, driving constantly, the Free French team was only just approaching the gap. Once more, Jordan told his men not to fire at anything. At 3.15 a.m. on the 23rd, the lead jeep was just coming out of a ravine when it met up with several German armored cars and lorries. Jordan hoped the men before him were just curious that they did not know for certain he and his were the enemy, and so stomped on the gas. Fortunately, the sand did not hold him back. His jeep and those behind him took off in an opening in between the armored cars. Yet the last jeep, the ninth of his line, did not make it out. Soon Jordan could hear machine gun fire. Continuing on, Jordan had no other choice. He and his remaining team were just south of El Hama, itself just south of the eastern tip of Lake de Gerard and south of the Gap, when they ran into more enemy lorries. As far as Jordan was concerned, the need for quiet no longer existed. So he had his vicar's guns open up on all those before him until there was no longer 
any movement. But during this firefight, the Allied vehicles had gotten separated. So between that and damage done during this latest contest, the Free French leader was down to just three jeeps. Yet the decision again was to go on. Only by the night of January 25th did the remaining group leave the gap and have their first raid, which was a success. Twelve mines were placed along a railroad track. Later that night, they destroyed another section of track, but then were pursued. The last three remaining jeeps got separated, and one by one, they were surrounded and forced to surrender. Jordan's jeep was surrounded by an entire Italian company, with machine guns all pointed at him. By this time, his larger guns were either without shells or inoperable. He and the two men with him raised their hands. It was the dusk of January 28th. When Jordan's team had run into the armored cars just south of the Gabe's Gap, Sterling's team, five jeeps and 14 men, were just 12 hours behind them. The going was smooth at first, but the closer they got to El Hama, the worse it got. When his team approached the area of the first firefight, David's team was spotted by two German reconnaissance planes. It was too dark for them to attack, but David knew they were already calling back to headquarters. Which meant that even though they had been awake for 48 hours, they had no choice but to keep driving until they were clear of the gap, which they did. It was sheer hell on the men, having gotten several vehicles stuck several times, but they were rewarded by discovering a deep wadi to hide in, once they were clear of the gap. After getting settled, the men noticed a very busy road to their north, but the road wasn't on any of their maps. This was the kind of intel that Monty and Freiburg had been looking for. Intelligence of enemy activity and good roads they could use for themselves. The men with David were nervous at being this close to such activity. This had not been their experience for all of their time with the SAS. They had been used to vast distances protecting them. But David told them as long as no one kicked up dust, they would remain hidden. So the best course of action was to rest, and then they would attack that road that night. As the men had not slept for 72 hours, they were all out within minutes, even the man who was supposed to be on lookout. Around three that afternoon, David and McDermott were awoken by a German voice shouting at them. The two men had been asleep in a small cave and managed to tear out of their sleeping bags to stand up. The young man before them was German all right, but David thought he looked almost as nervous as they were. Perhaps there would be a chance to run away. After all, the young man might not shoot, or he might miss. But once they were outside the cave, they could see hundreds of German soldiers nearby, with guns, all pointed at them and their men. Of all ironies, this was a special group brought from Germany, given the specific task of capturing members of the SAS. In fact, they had picked this wadi as a practice run, having just disembarked. They had simply stumbled upon their quarry, and the man who had come into the cave and captured the Phantom Major was the company's dentist. The Commonwealth troops were gathered together at a lorry to be taken away. Right away, David could see that three of his men, 
Sadler, Cooper, and Taxus, a borrowed French soldier, were missing. David could only hope they got away. He certainly did not wish that they hung about trying to break out their boss. Sterling had his own plans. After a two-hour drive south in the back of the truck, Sterling and the other captives were taken to a large open building, somewhere near Medina, to the southeast of Mareth. It was obvious to Sterling that the soldiers were green, but they had the guns, and there were a lot of them. After two days, David had determined the best chance to escape was when the men were taken outside to answer the call of nature. On that same day, one of the German guards boasted that German radio would be announcing the capture of the SAS leader and some of his crew. Honestly, David and his were expecting much worse news. Hitler had made it plain through radio announcements that all saboteurs in North Africa were to be shot forthwith. Rommel, on the other hand, did not adhere to his master's wishes, much to his detriment. That night, around 10 p.m., Sterling was ready to attempt escape. The plan was for him to ask to be taken outside so he could relieve himself. At the opportune moment, he would give a shout and run into the darkness. McDermott would use the ensuing confusion to make a dash out of the building. David was taken about 20 yards away from the building. The Germans did not turn away, but they were quickly bored and were soon more concerned about lighting their cigarettes. David knew this was his moment. His best chance had come. Shrieking, he then dashed away, disappearing into the dark. The guard shot into the area David had been in, and one gave chase. McDermott, right on cue, pushed down the guard closest to him and ran out the door, going in a different direction. David ran for a while until he could no longer hear voices. Then he took out a small compass he used as a shirt button the Germans had not noticed and got his bearings. The idea was to find McDermott and then head for the rendezvous point at Bir Sultan, about 50 miles away. But for right now, the priorities were to find McDermott and get far enough away before first light. Yet the two men never found each other. Sterling whistled the signal the two men had worked out, but there was no reply. David tried for another hour as he walked, whistling occasionally, but again, no response. By morning, Sterling was starving. The Germans had only fed them a little soup and bread. So, when he came upon a house that was obviously owned by an influential Arab, he risked knocking on the door. Fortunately, the man had his grievances against the Germans and offered comfort and aid. After sleeping for a while in the man's barn, David set out again, guessing he was now no more than 30 miles from Bir Sultan, which, to the Phantom Major, was child's play. So, when the courteous Arab had mentioned a German airfield nearby, David thought nothing of going out of his way a bit to see it for himself. By the time he reached it, it was dark enough for him to sneak onto the airfield. Soon he was surrounded by dozens of JU-52s, several repair shops, and hangars. He would have to remember this place. But that was for another day. Continuing on his trek, David then found a place to sleep, covered himself with scrub, and dozed off. This awakening was nicer than the last time, but again he was stirred to consciousness by a voice, not his. An Arab was before him, asking him 
did he sleep well. Then the man, who seemed not to have a gun on his person, offered to take David to a place with food and water. David decided to follow the man, for a while at least. He could always sprint away, if need be. But when they came over a hill, David saw before him five lorries eating up the ground in between themselves and him. He was now a prisoner of the Italians. The Arab, it seems, had a partner who was sent back to fetch the Italians. David realized he had been played, and in his anger at himself, grabbed the second man by the legs, lifted him up, and tried to smash his head into the ground. The movement did not come off as planned, and instead of breaking the man's neck or head, the man was only stunned. The Italians then ran forward and secured this giant desert warrior. Not wanting to make the same mistake as the Germans, David was quickly given over to the local Italian guards. He was first sent to El Hama, then to the Italian headquarters at Menzel, then to the airfield he had promised himself to return to. Yet these were obviously not under the circumstances he meant. Adding insult to injury, Sterling was soon flown to Italy in one of the JU-52s he had run his hand along the night before. McDermott was also recaptured and would eventually be sent to a German POW camp for the rest of the war. After the hostilities were over, the two men tried to contact each other, but in the post-war confusion, never pulled it off. In fact, they never saw each other again. As for Cooper, Sadler, and Taxus, they had managed to get away as David and the others were rounded up. But unlike David, they didn't have a compass or map hidden in their clothing. So, just decided to head north and link up with the British First Army. On their way, they ran into Arabs, some kind, others not so much. But after several adventures, they had come upon a unit of the Free French. They were treated well until given over to the British. But eventually, the Eighth Army convinced the First Army they were the good guys. David was eventually taken to an Italian prison camp at Gavi in the northwest. But the Italian guards there weren't any more reliable than the first German guards that tried to hold Sterling. He escaped four times, but he was recaptured each time. A six-foot-six man is quite noticeable in any part of Italy. After the fourth escape, the Italians had had enough. Strange that no one thought to just shoot the man. But by this time, it was clear who was going to win, or rather not win, the war. So that probably factored into the leniency. Sterling was sent to and spent the rest of the war in Kolditz in eastern Germany, near Dresden. Without Sterling, the SAS stumbled, but it persevered. Patty May took over, the SAS was expanded, and it participated in raids in Sicily, Italy, France, and then Germany. It also had its part on D-Day. After the war, David was asked to go to Japan. He accepted, but the war there was over before he could leave. He next headed to Rhodesia to work in industry, but honestly spent most of his considerable energy and talent in creating the Capricorn Society. This organization tried to make it possible for the various races of Africa to live together without prejudice. As for David Sterling, the Scot who created the SAS, on the shoulders of others, of course, 
whose organization had managed to destroy more than 250 planes, who wrecked roads, railways, and hundreds of vehicles and numerous structures just in the 15 months during his time as the head of the SAS, died in 1990 at the age of 74. He had been knighted just previously that same year. Would the Allies have won in North Africa without the SAS? Probably. But Rommel, damn sure, would have certainly used all that equipment taken from him to good effect. Time, always crucial in war and lives, were saved by the Phantom Major and his merry men. <laughs>